Detectives hunting the killer of Norfolk schoolgirl Joanna Young are appealing for people with even the smallest piece of information to come forward. Joanna's partly clothed body was found in a water-filled pit about a mile from her home on Boxing Day. We do remain disappointed with the quality of responses from the people close to the killer. People like her didn't just go missing and disappear. During the Christmas holidays in December 1992, teenager Joanna Young went missing from her hometown in Watton in the county of Norfolk, East England. Her body was found three days later, floating face down in a freezing Watfield pit. Her jeans were missing. She had a fractured skull and had been dragged to the pit from a nearby path, probably by two people. Who killed her remains unsolved to today. Hello and welcome to episode two of Unfinished. Thanks for coming back. In part one, we heard all about the background to how 14-year-old Joanna Young was found dead in a Wardfield pit in a small Norfolk town. We uncovered a couple of bits of information which had not been heard before publicly, so do go back and have a listen if you haven't yet. This episode might not make a massive amount of sense if you haven't heard episode one first. Now, I said in the first episode that I got in touch with Joanna's parents about this podcast, but I hadn't heard back. That was before we started doing anything. However, after episode one was published, a family member did call me. They've asked me to make it clear that Joanna was not involved with the more troubling side of the youth scene in Wharton, which I talk about in episode one. I explore this because it was the focus of the police investigation. It got a lot of coverage in the press at the time, and it is relevant to the case. It was also the world which the police's chief suspect came from. I said in episode one that there was no suggestion Joanna was involved in that scene of drugs, underage drinking and sex. And at the request of Joanna's family, I'd like to make that clear again. Today, I'm going to start by taking you back 26 years to the atmosphere in Watton and the immediate aftermath of Joanna's death, before we move on to the police investigation and theories. But I want to start by talking about fear. Fear of strangers, of some unknown evil. Fear that a sex attacker is on the loose. That is how the people of Watton felt after Joanna's body was found. You hear so much of this sort of thing happening, and as parents we get worried, so we obviously try to drum all this this business about going going off with strangers. For God's sake, make sure you know where they're going. Yes. Because I wish the hell I'd done that. Those are the voices of Joanna's parents at a desperately emotional press conference on December the 28th. And on the streets of the town, this is what people were telling local TV station, ITV Anglia. I've got an 11-year-old daughter. I don't like her out my sight now. I think it's a ghastly tragedy. But uh, it's a sick world we live in now, isn't it? It's awful news. To think it's coming this close, it's awful. Remember, it is not until later that police established Joanna was not sexually assaulted and they also become convinced that the killer is local. So it is quite normal for people in the town to believe that a stranger, a sex attacker, is on the loose. Adding to that fear is the death of another teenage girl in mysterious circumstances just four weeks earlier. The killing of teenage prostitute Natalie Pearman, who was abducted, strangled and dumped in Woodland near Norwich a month ago. 16-year-old Natalie Pearman had been working as a prostitute in Norwich, the county city of Norfolk, which is about 25 miles from Watton. At 3.50am on Thursday, 20th of November 1992, a lorry driver en route to work discovered her body in a lay-by on the outskirts of the city. Now that case has no connection to this one, apart from the fact it has also never been solved. But you can see why the death of two teenage girls within a few weeks of each other created fear. 
This is the backdrop, the atmosphere, when detectives begin their investigation and when 40 police officers from outside the area arrive in the small, sometimes inward-looking town and what would become Norfolk's biggest ever murder inquiry runs into problems. Police initially treated Joanna's disappearance as a missing person investigation, but things obviously escalated on Boxing Day evening when her body was found. Here is PC Peter Walmsley, who was a neighbourhood officer in the town and Norfolk Constabulary's press spokesman at the time. We meet at Peter's home near the centre of Watton, in a beautiful old cottage. There was absolutely nothing happening in the press or papers mm. at the time of her murder, so it just took over. Do you remember where you were when, when you found I her? I was here. Um, serving up Boxing Day dinner and a phone call comes from my sergeants uh, in community relations. First action is get in my car and drive to Durham quickly and uh, I knew I knew the officer uh, concerned very well, my sergeant and it was it was not in his book to do this, he was not capable of doing it. He was a nice guy, um, very ordered, very organised but there's just no way he could cope with the amount that was coming in the murder case was given to an experienced officer, Detective Superintendent Mike Cole. Cole's claim to fame is introducing the Crime Stopper scheme to the UK in 1983. He had also solved plenty of murder cases before this one and was confident of getting a similar result. I got in touch with him for this podcast and asked to speak to him. He sent a very polite email back. He said he didn't want to get involved but wished me the best of luck. Here he is speaking to ITV Anglia the day after Joanna's body was found. She had a severe head injury, but certainly she died from drowning. And how would you characterise her killer? At this time I would characterise him as a calm, brutal killer. A calm, brutal killer. That is what Mike Cole is seeking. But police run into problems with their investigation. The first problem, as you've probably guessed from episode one, is a lack of any witnesses about that night. It is a horrible foggy evening just before Christmas. Hardly anyone's about and her body is not found for three days. That made it difficult at first for police to narrow down the time of her death. As we'll find out, witnesses did eventually play a crucial role in helping them to do this. But when it came to identifying suspects and people around that night, they were at a bit of a loss. Jan Godfrey, Joanna's teacher, drove past the track Muddy Lane, which Joanna walked down the very evening where she met her killer. I remember driving back and it being absolutely thick and just where Gilman's Drift starts off the main road it was particularly thick there so it would have been difficult to have seen anybody. So the weather is terrible, there are few witnesses and added to that is a tension between police and people in Watton about how police go about their investigation. Officers are brought in from outside the area and they go in hard. Watton is not used to that. PC Wormsley recalls what crime in Watton was like before the Joanna Young killing. Let's just say the police station was open. <laughs> it had a receptionist, a telephonist, um, who was our secretary as well, lovely woman. And um, there were eight beat constables in three shifts, one, uh, four shifts, one off, you know, on rest days, and two sergeants and one inspector at Swatham who covered Swatham and Watton. But there was not a lot happening in Watton, really. In response to their inquiries, the information and leads officers get is weak. 
Police become frustrated about the lack of information, while people in the town get frustrated about the lack of police's progress. Speaking to the press at the time, Peter Wormsley criticised a wall of silence. Here he is speaking to BBC Radio in 1992. We are very grateful to the public of Watton for the information that they've given us thus far. But we do remain disappointed, not with the public of Watton, not with the general public, they mustn't think that at all, but with the, the quality of responses from the people close to the killer. And that is really the essence of what we're saying in our disappointment. Joanna's dad, Robert, also tells ITV Anglia that he believes someone was protecting the killer and that they're local. Robert Young has been making more appeals today for information which could help the police in the search for the killer of his daughter, Joanna. Her father says today that people could be shielding his daughter's killer. Um, I, I believe so. Um, I'm almost certain that's the case, yes. Mr Young believes that the person who killed Joanna is local. Purely because the location, this lane and pit, uh, is really... Out in a beaten track, it's not the sort of thing that uh, can be seen from any particular road. It's it's really out of the way. Detectives have been working round the clock at the incident room set up in Deerham, but there leads a few. I asked Peter again today about the lack of substantial leads. You, there were a lot of calls from people in Modern Loads of calls. They called me at my house. But there were, when you say nothing substantial, what, what do you mean by that? No evidential stuff. No real evidence. What, I what saw sort of thing a motorbike, saying? I saw a motorbike up Griston Road and I saw her on the back of it. It didn't happen. There were rumours that there was a bike over there. Someone heard a motorbike. Someone may have seen her up on the, um, the muddy lane that leads to Griston Road from the Norwich Road, the, the lane area on the left and um, no, there was just nothing really of any substance so it's hard graft for the detectives. Well, what sort of information were, were the police looking for that they weren't getting? They were looking for sightings, they were looking for actual sightings of Joanna, they wanted to find something or someone who would spell out what was happening to her in her life, where she went, what she was interested in, what she was doing, what she may not have been um, known that she was doing. Jan Godfrey also remembers the tension. The problem is that there wasn't any information to give. You could not blame the local community. You could blame perhaps one person unidentified. Well, two. One, the chap who was with her, and, and one, the person who knew that he was, if there is such a thing. I mean, I, I recall there was one chap who got who was really angry with the police because he went to say I was walking walking my dog. I think he was. I can't remember exactly walking my dog home, um, and I, so I was out on the road at about the time you're talking about, and I didn't see him. And you'd have thought he'd done it by the police reaction. Yeah, yeah. Their, their reaction was, and, and they called him back several times. And he, he ended up saying, I'll never, ever do anything to help police again. Adrian and Vivian Sellers, who we heard from in episode one, operated a taxi firm in the town where Joanna worked at weekends and on holidays. Adrian and his son were both working the night Joanna disappeared, and at different points they both drove a red Peugeot estate car 
which a witness saw and flagged up to police. The police asked for statements and they gave them. But listen to this next bit. It is pretty shocking and Vivian is clearly still upset about it now. Uh, the police asked me for our log of that night and they looked at it and they didn't take a copy but they came back two days later and two detectives, one um, was not very nice, that was his job, but he was even he's even a bit more brash when he came back two days later and asked me to change, was I absolutely sure of the times on, on a couple of runs. He this wanted, was from the night of the 23rd? It, this is from the night of the 23rd, yeah. And what did he want to change? He, he wanted to change, to, to suit what somebody else had told him. He wanted you to change the log times? Yes, he did. What did you say? No, I, no, I wouldn't. Because he, 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 was trying, he was trying to manipulate me to say that I wasn't sure that that was the right time. But when you are doing um, a log like that, you have to know where your drivers are, what time they're leaving, and who to pick up at what time. There, there might have been a couple of minutes difference, but only two minutes, but they wanted more than two minutes. Why was so, that? What was he trying to make it? Th he tried to make that, that that car was not where I said it was. Which car was that, sir? That red car. Th there was an appeal at the time, wasn't there, for someone who'd seen a red estate C yes. car? Yes. Was that, was that one of your drivers? That was our estate That was your car. car. So just to recap, Vivian and Adrian both say that a detective on the case tried to get them to change their taxi log, to manipulate possible evidence, to fit with the police's narrative of events that night. The exact reason for why they needed the timings on the taxi log to change is unclear, but we know that police were appealing for information at the time about a red estate car which was seen by someone driving around Watton the evening Joanna went missing. That was the seller's car. But something about the timings of where it was when did not fit with what the police needed. Up until this point we've only heard some criticism about the way the police approached the investigation, not about deliberate attempts to change evidence. And you can tell it did not go down well with the sellers. The problems I've talked about here which police were facing are perhaps best summed up by one mysterious postcard. On New Year's Eve 1992, a week after Joanna first goes missing, a postcard drops through the door of the office which I'm now sitting in. It is the headquarters of the Eastern Daily Press, the newspaper I work for. It is a large concrete building which opened in 1970 on Ruan Road in Norwich City Centre. I have a copy of it in front of me. The original has been with Norfolk Police ever since it arrived here. It's a small postcard with a postage stamp of Jesus and Mary. It says, Griston Road, Watton, 23rd of the 12th, 9pm. Motorcycle, youth, girl. So it gives the date that Joanna disappears. It gives a time around an hour and a half after she leaves her home. It has a picture of a motorcycle and a picture of a youth and a picture of a girl, drawn as stick people. When it arrived at the Eastern Daily Press offices, journalists found a handwriting expert to take a look. That expert found that the person had deliberately tried to cover their tracks. They had used both the left and right hands in writing and drawing the card. They also sent the card 
from a Norwich post box and not from a local Wattle one. Police have been trying to trace who sent it ever since. Here's EDP report from the time, John Kitson. Well, I never saw it. All I saw was the picture in the paper the following day. He <laughs> went into he went into Prospect House in Norwich. That's right. And there was uh, there was the the Criston uh, uh, Road date time two stick pictures of a youth and a girl and a picture of a motorbike each with a label on and that was it there was no nobody knew where it came from I don't think it was ever discovered they still don't know to no, this day no they've got a notion no didn't have a notion just arrived there was a suggestion uh, I think this came out through the police that a, a young man with a motorcycle was seen in the area around that time um, that's about as explicit as they could get now the card gives a time of 9pm about 90 minutes after Joanna leaves her home it could be a key bit of evidence in the theory that Joanna went off with a young lad on a motorbike and could have fallen off the back of the bike, hence the blow to the back of her head. Or it could be a prank. But it certainly fits with the police's frustration that someone other than the killer knows what happened the night Joanna went missing, but is not letting on. If you knew something or saw something, why not just come forward and tell the police? Why write a cryptic postcard and then disguise your tracks? Could the killer himself have sent it to put police off the scent, just as he may have done by taking the genes and making it look like a sexual assault? Or is this someone who genuinely knows what happens but is too scared to say any more? We will probably never know for sure who sent that postcard, why it was sent, but it fits with the theory of someone on a motorbike being linked to Joanna's death. So let's explore that a little more. Remember what Peter Wormsley said about the motorbike? I saw a motorbike up Griston Road and I saw her on the back of it. It didn't happen. There were rumours that there was a bike over there. Someone heard a motorbike. It is, however, a theory that police today still have not ruled out and has been put forward repeatedly. Adding to that is the fact that the weapon which led to her having a fractured skull has never been found. Could she have fallen off a bike instead and fractured her skull? There are no other injuries on her body to suggest a motorbike accident, but the inquest did establish that Joanna had a very thin skull. Therefore, could it be possible she fell from a static bike and hit her head? Detective Chief Inspector Marie James, who led this cold case for Norfolk Police, said last year, It was always a possibility, though never proven, that the head injury could have been caused by coming off a motorcycle. A witness also described seeing a couple leaning on a motorbike that night. That couple has never been identified. That witness, a dog walker, reported seeing a young woman who fitted Joanna's description and a young man standing at the entrance of Gilman's Drift Muddy Lane at around 9pm that night. But against all this is the fact that there's no hard evidence that a motorcycle is seen or heard being driven on Muddy Lane that night. A key witness who helped police narrow down the time of Joanna's death did not see or hear a motorbike. He was walking his dog down Gilman's Drift just after 11pm on the night Joanna disappeared. His dog heard someone running, stumbling in the darkness. His dog barked and he saw a figure stumble into a water trough. The man shouted at the person he saw, but that man disappeared. He was only a silhouette. He ran to fetch a torch, but by the time he had returned, all was quiet. He had no idea who he heard or what he'd heard. So the only real hard evidence to back up the theory that a motorbike was involved, that Joanna fell off a motorbike, 
is a postcard and a witness who saw two people leaning on a bike. I believe the theory of the motorbike has persisted in Watton because it is the most comforting theory. I spoke at the start of this episode about fear in the town. The theory that she fell off the back of a motorbike is the antidote to this fear. There's no killer in our town. It was all a big mistake. It was an accident. Here is Joanna's former teacher again, Jan Godfrey. We were all so... Yeah, it doesn't happen in Watton, does it? <laughs> we were all so perplexed by how one of our children could go missing and then and then the awfulness of it, of it emerging that she'd probably been killed by somebody. It didn't... It could have been an accident. We were all... There was always that doubt. You know, was it... Did somebody... Did she fall off the back of a motorbike and hit her head and somebody panicked and, and pushed her in the water? You know, what, what really happened? And I still, yeah, I don't know which of those things it was. I said at the start of this that there were four questions which remain key to solving this case today. Those questions have not changed for 26 years. The first is to do with her genes. Where were they between her death and four weeks later when they're found strewn on a bush by Griston Road. Why are the jeans taken by someone, but her shoes and underwear are left there? Is it an accident or is it calculated? Could the jeans have been picked up by someone unaware that they were Joanna's? They may have panicked, washed them, quietly returned them, but had nothing to do with Joanna's death. The fact the jeans were not found, but the underwear and shoes were, suggests it's more likely the killer took them. It would mean that he believes his DNA is on the jeans, but not on the underwear or shoes, which is why he's left them at the scene. To get the jeans off her though, her shoes would have to be taken off first. It just doesn't make sense, and I'm not a detective, so I'm going to ask a retired police intelligence officer called Chris Clark, who used to work in Norfolk and specialises in cold cases. Oh, yeah, hi Chris, how's, how, how's it going? Yeah, we're fine, thank you. A report at the time says the pathologist believed that Joanna's skull was fractured by a fall rather than by a blow. Yes, my, my thoughts on that, I mean, uh, probably the, the weather at the time, we're, we're talking about Christmas Eve 1992. Yeah, it's horrible. The, the, the ground would be quite solid um, yes. with, with, um, with penetrating ice. Yes. Uh, with, with Joanna's skull as it was, it's quite conceivable that just a fall from standing to the ground would be sufficient to fracture her skull. And that then leads me on to the, um, the removal of, of the jeans and underwear. Um, I've studied many cases, including the one of Wendy Sewell in Bakewell Cemetery in 1973, where Wendy was rendered unconscious before being undressed. And her, her um, trainers, her jeans and her underwear were all removed without any marks at all on the body. Um, so if you have a victim who's not struggling, there, there aren't going to be any marks on, on the body. So to me, that would suggest strongly that Joanna was already um, conscious um, when, when her clothing was removed. Sorry, did you say conscious or unconscious? Unconscious. Yes. Yeah, to, to me, the, the, the clothing is strewn around, so it suggests to me if she'd consented, they would, her, her underwear, her jeans, her trainers would all be um, in, a, in a pile very close to her body, not uh, in different locations. So it suggests to me that um, 
she was stripped after she, she was unconscious and it suggests to me that she'd fallen to the ground and was rendered unconscious for that to occur without marks being on the body. And, and the, the removal of the genes from the scene of crime, you've got to bear in mind that uh, DNA came in about um, five years previously. It was still in, in its infancy. And to me, it would strongly suggest with not taking the underwear away as well as the genes, that there was something, con some contact from the offender on those genes. So everything was found at the scene apart from the genes. Yes. So that suggests to me there was no DNA at all on any of the other clothing, and that's why it wasn't taken away from the scene. But there was, however, something on the genes that would identify the culprit, and that's why they were taken away. It doesn't seem that there's an intention to kill her. Um... No. I, I, I think um, it, it panicked. And at that point, what, what, what do I do? Um, and then, um, obviously, knowing where the pit was, um, she, she was then dragged bodily to that pit and... and uh, in the, in the hope that uh, someone might think she died of some other reason. Right. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. And the, why? Why then tuck the, the the shoes sort of neatly under a bush and then put the underwear and tights a few hundred or a hundred yards down the road? Um, I think that was probably to to give give him time away from the scene of the crime and. If that was the individual seen by the um, or heard by the dog walker, that would suggest to me that he didn't finish what he intended to do, having returned to the scene of the crime that night. So, to me, the the the, the crime had clearly occurred earlier than eleven o'clock, and eleven o'clock was when he was trying to get the jeans away from the scene. And, and uh, you've got to bear in mind you're talking about in pitch darkness, in in uh, the end of December, so he would have very limited opportunity to, to find and recover everything from the scene. Um, so to me, he wasn't clearly not interested in removing the, the underwear and the shoes, but just the jeans. And he also returns to the scene on other occasions, please believe, um, to sort of cover her body up a bit more and, and all the rest of it. Um, so he obviously has easy access to... Um, to, to the crime scene? Yes, every, every, everything um, that I've seen suggests the work of a, a local person. Um, I don't think the crime was premeditated. Um, I think it was spontaneous. The pathologist told her inquest in June 1993 that her skull was likely fractured by a fall rather than a blow to the back of the head. She had a very thin skull and was knocked unconscious when she fell. But the man who would become her killer mistakenly believes she is dead. He runs off to get help to move her body and returns later that night with someone else. They then drag her body to the clay pit. Police discovered drag marks on the lane by the pit and they fitted them with scratches on Joanna's back. That meant she was dragged in a U-shape with one person holding her arms or her top half and the other holding her feet. What may have started as a youthful prank finished up in tragedy, said Coroner Christopher Starkin at the inquest in 93. Peter Walmsley, who knows this case better than almost anyone else, agrees. If she was on a motorbike, or if she'd had a row with the suspect, and he had hit her, and she fell down, you know, knocked out Sparko, and fell down on the ground, 
It was minus three that night. Muddy Lane was full of stones that, you know, were on the surface, but embedded in the earth. They didn't move. They were just, it was like a muddy track. And three degrees of frost is quite substantial. Very, very cold. She, I believe, she, this is what happened, that she had a very, it was proved in post-mortem that she had a very, very thin base of her skull. You may, may or may not know that. And that would have knocked her out completely. She may have well, her breath, her, her body, her heart would have, might have gone into, you know, um, almost stopping. She wouldn't have been breathing. So he would have looked at her, remember, air coming out your mouth in minus degrees, you know, you're getting lots of steam. He probably thought he killed her. And then I think he disappeared and went on to get someone else to help him to carry her body to somewhere that he knew, which was that pond, which had been an old clay pit. And that pit was full of brambles that thick, all over the place. So he had to push his way through those and put Joanna's body in there. He didn't do it on his own. I don't think he did that on his own. He went away, got help. Because another bit of evidence is that any forensic evidence we had, no hair, no, you know, no, no, nothing from anyone else was found on the body, but there was a mark where she'd been dragged in the, in the um, base of her spine. So her legs were carried by someone, her arms were carried by someone, and she dragged along that track, and it grazed her. And they found a bit of, they, they dug out a bit of uh, flesh from her and proved that that came from that ground. John Kitson, the newspaper reporter covering Watton at the time, also remembers that being the police's work in theory. Rather than a murder, it was something that had gone wrong, an assignation that had gone wrong for one reason or another. Uh, you know, that was, that was uh, current for quite some time. So knowing all of that, and bearing in mind everything we've heard about Watton, being a relatively closed-off community... Why do police aggressively pursue this as a murder case from the start? Remember Detective Superintendent Mike Cole saying he was looking for a calm, brutal killer. And remember police bemoaning the fact that people close to the killer were not coming forward. Murder is a premeditated killing with malice. The evidence here suggests no one set out to kill Joanna that night. Rather, it was manslaughter. Manslaughter carries a far shorter prison sentence in the UK and begs the question, could police have solved this at the time if they had gone in a bit gentler? If they had encouraged the person who helped the killer to come forward, knowing they would not get a long prison sentence? Joanna's teacher, Jan Godfrey, believes a gentler police approach could have made a difference. The police reacted, immediately said this awful murder rather than, um, as I recall it, rather than we don't know what happened. They sort of reacted, it seemed a bit overreaction. Um, that rather than there's been an awful accident or manslaughter. Yeah, or there's been an awful event and we don't know what it is, what, how it happened yet. Peter Walmsley said he remembered debating with Mike Coe at the time whether or not they should adapt their approach to encourage the accomplice to come forward. One thing I'd like to say, yeah, I remember Superintendent Cole having a real go at me about this, because I said, you know, 
if you put this out as manslaughter and not murder, you might get someone to come in and say something a bit more about it. Mates stay loyal to their mates for a long, long time. And if, you know, if it's manslaughter, life does not mean life imprisonment, not just murder, really. But he might have got 10 years as opposed to 25 years. And he might sort of think about that. Well, that'd be over now anyway, wouldn't it? If he'd come forward. God, he went absolutely bonkers at me. He said, don't you dare put that out. Who was that mate, that second person who helped move the body? That is the second of four questions police must answer to solve this case. The evidence suggests the killer was a young local man. Therefore, the accomplice is likely to be a young local man too. We're going to start the next episode by exploring that. Thank you for listening to Unfinished. If you found this episode interesting, please share and recommend it with your friends. You can also find out more about this case by visiting the Unfinished Podcast webpage on the Eastern Daily Press website, www.edp24.co.uk.